My name is Kevin Smith, Editor-in-Chief of International Railway Journal, and this is Rail Group On Air, a podcast from IRJ, Railway Age, and Railway Track and Structures. What is the future of railway asset finance? How can green financing give rail the edge in the quest to reduce emissions from transport? On today's episode, I discuss these questions and more with Carson Vibers, the Global Head of Mobility at KFW IPEX Bank. KFW is increasingly active in the railway world, providing key finance for sustainable assets, including a new fleet of hydrogen trains for the Heidelkraut Bahn in Germany, which are due to enter service next year. Like all of us, KFW and Carsten want to see rail carry more people and goods to help combat the climate crisis. We discuss some of the financial challenges of doing this. We also address the potential opportunities for rail to access the new forms of finance that it needs to be successful in the future. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, uh, nice to be here today. I'm, I've got Carsten Vivers, who's the Global Head of Mobility at KFW IPX Bank in Frankfurt, and he's joining me live on Zoom this afternoon. Uh, nice to see you again, Carsten. It's been a, a little while since we've been in touch, but yeah, good to see you. You're looking well. So just to kick us off, really, you know, KFW IPX Bank is you know, you know relatively active now in, in the rail market, and you're obviously the Head of Global Mobility at the bank. Um, I'm just curious to know, what does the rail department actually do, and you know, what is your role within that? Yeah. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for this opportunity. Great to talk to you. The mobility department doesn't cover only rail finance, but uh, in addition, public transport. So that is also light rail, buses, uh, and and fleets, vehicle fleets. But in addition, we also cover aviation and the maritime industry, ships, cruise ships, um, aircraft, and so on. So in principle, everything which moves, which um, we have put together recently, mobility or transport in total, emits about 20% of the global CO2 emissions. So therefore, we look at this comprehensively as a significant source of CO2 emissions, which we are, with our financing, trying to support to change for the future and to reduce. Sure. So then how does rail fall within that, especially in terms of emissions and sustainability? And how are you at KFW or IPX Bank supporting rail and public transport in its fight against climate change and its pursuit of sustainability? I mean, in, in principle, the perception, the quite right perception is that rail and public transport is, is a somewhat green form of mobility in itself, right? Uh, especially if it is electrified and uh, powered by renewable electricity and so on. So right from the start, with respect to its history and technology, which is available today, has a great potential to reduce CO2 emissions within the mobility sector. It's a bit more difficult for obvious reasons in aviation and in shipping, for safety reasons for available technology with respect to the hardware, whether ships or aircraft, but also with respect to uh, net zero fuel. It's um, in principle known that it is possible to do that, but a hell of a lot of investment is necessary in these sectors like maritime and aviation to reduce the emissions. That is, for obvious reasons, somewhat easier in rail uh, and public transport. 
And therefore, uh, we are seeking um, opportunities to support these two industries, not only in Germany or Europe, but actually globally with quite a lot of activities we cover in various countries. And I know through our coverage through IRJ and you know, they're seeing you and about in <laughs> railway conferences and events, you know that you're you know, a big advocate really for a new organisational structure for the industry. And could you perhaps explain what, what your vision is here, what this might mean, and maybe pro- provide an example of how this is working in, in practice from, from your experience? Yeah, I mean, in, in principle, what we offer is... Um, to finance the rail sector uh, first place in general, right? We finance um, rolling stock uh, for heavy rail, for freight, for passenger services, um, but also infrastructure, um, light rail, metros, and so on. And you've done Um, that across the world, right? Um, yes, I mean, you know, we do it a lot in Germany, we do it a lot in Europe, especially with the leasing companies, rail leasing companies in Europe. But we are definitely expanding now globally with respect to rail finance uh, in the Asia Pacific region. In, in India, we have uh, first um, projects uh, of new railway lines in Africa, um, seeking opportunities also in the Americas. So we are expanding globally the classical finance for public entities, private entities, project companies is our standard business. We do have a focus on new technology, emission, low emission or net zero uh, emission technology. But finance and technology, we believe, is not going to be the big game changer. It needs more to promote that change towards more rail passenger services, more public transport, to shift more freight and passengers from road to rail. And this is what you indicated earlier. We are a big fan of uh, what we call a new organizational structure in the industry, which we have learned from our customers in various countries. And uh, we see a lot of benefits and we are also advising and propagating uh, such new organizational system. Now, you mentioned Germany there as a company that you've obviously been quite active in, and that's where you're based. But I know the example of the Heiderkraut barn you know, is, a, is a project that you've been you know, heavily involved in. And could you expand on that? What structure have they employed here? And, and why is this proving advantageous um, for, you know, for, for the business that, that they're looking to grow there with you know, the reopening of that railway, hopefully sometime next year? The core element, I don't know whether you can still call it innovation because these these structures came with a railway reform in Germany in 1994. So, uh, you know, by the end of the year, it's, it's 30 years ago, where the new regulation opened the door for private operators, for new operators. And the, the core element of this new structure is to simply separate the ownership of the rolling stock from its operation. What does that mean? To separate the two functions, you do create two separate corporate entities, one entity which owns the trains and another entity which operates them. Now, in the case you mentioned, Heidekraut Bahn, that's a regional train. It runs from Northern Berlin into Brandenburg, into the countryside, 
So we do have a private entity which owns the trains. These are hydrogen trains, mm -hmm. hydrogen fuel cell trains. So still on a somewhat experimental technology, still somewhat experimental technology with the risks uh, associated with that new technology. So we have a private owner of these trains, and then we have a private operator who runs these trains. Obviously, both functions need to be subsidized, the asset owning and the operations. Therefore, the connecting party, if you want, is the, uh, the two regional governments of the city of Berlin and the state of Brandenburg. They have together a joint public transport authority which has then separate contracts with the asset-owning company and with the operator, NEB is the operator. And uh, you have separate concessions, separate contracts, and therefore a separate regime under what conditions and how much subsidies goes to the owning company and under what conditions how much subsidies go to the operating company. So that's structure in the essence of it. We find it a lot in, in Germany for regional railway systems, but it is not unique to Germany. We finance similar structures across the globe. We, we yeah. all know of the UK system where that has been done a long time ago. Uh, in an extreme case, separating infrastructure, rolling stock and operations and privatizing everything. A somewhat more moderate model is what we really favor and finance is in India, where you have with Indian Railways Finance Corporation, an asset-owning company, independent from Indian Railways, which is the operator. There are many benefits to the participants. We think it has many advantages. Yeah, it seems to have a lot of advantage, obviously, um, from, you know, from what you've said. In, in your view, you know, what is holding this back more widely? You know, why aren't we seeing you know, an array of people follow this model and, and seemingly access this you know, new finance? You know, the Heidekreit brand, you know, bringing in new hydrogen trains, that's a, that's a bold move, isn't it? It's not, it's not easy to do necessarily, but they seem to find a formula where, where that is viable. I think the, um, the innovation in terms of organizing the participants or the different functions needs to be carefully thought of. It's very complex because you have so many participants. Unlike the rail freight sector, which runs commercially, you may have only one commercial operator who owns their own uh, rolling stock. Uh, second step, you have the freight operator who's leasing from the well-known leasing companies, you know, for the for the wagons, uh, VTG in Hamburg or for the locomotives, Railpool in Munich and, and, and the likes. We, we have quite a few uh, of these companies in Europe. So it's a, you have only two participants. For passenger transport, it is essential to subsidize it. It cannot run commercially. For a larger national network, or if you go into lower density populated regional areas. So inevitably, as a third participant, you have the government, the regional government, the public transport as an essential um, participant. So we have all learned a lot uh, from the rather excessive uh, privatization in Britain. The Australians are learning their lessons with respect to their PPP models for their regional trains, especially when COVID hit and the revenues didn't come anymore. They are rethinking their models. 
So I think to your question, why is the um, you know the reform being implemented somewhat slowly is because there are many participants. You can have many different alternatives how to structure it, and then one has to do it carefully. And I think now is the opportunity to learn from the best cases. What is it? What uh, fulfills the expectations? to continue with that and what expectations were not being fulfilled and to eliminate that. And therefore, even though rail is such a regional business, I think it's very important to learn from each other, uh, from these cases globally. And therefore, you know, what you're providing with your magazine or podcast or whatever, I think is such an excellent opportunity to learn for the members of this industry globally from each other. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely our role. So, yeah, glad to play a little part in that. Um, we were talking previously, but you know, it's obviously a very complex, structured industry with, with a lot of history. And you know, how, how can we get beyond that? Like, you know, we've, you know, there's this term of you no, know, the railway renaissance that's, that's headed around. Is is that an opportunity in you, in your view, to sort of rewrite the rules here and you know, really rethink what we're doing and and to try and pull out some of the advantages you know, that, you, that you're, you're talking about there, which will have a you know a much wider benefit to passengers, to operators, and, and to governments and their bottom line ultimately. Frankly, I think the pressure the pressure comes from the from global warming and the climate discussion. Right, you have. Looking broadly, you so many emittents. Yeah, you have industries who are emitting CO two. You have um, um, buildings, uh, private houses, or commercial buildings uh, which are emitting, and you have you have transport and you have power generation. These, are, to the best of my knowledge, are the big emittents of CO two, and those parts of business and infrastructure which has a smaller number of decision makers, let's say the steel industry or utilities or so, you can make progress faster uh, with changing to low or uh, zero emission assets and technology. On the transport side, mobility side is much more complex. You have millions of decision makers, participants, uh, every car driver has to think, do I switch to an electrical car or not? Uh, you have thousands of municipalities which on their own have to figure out what is really the best technology. Do I do I want really also test a hydrogen train? Do I want to electrify it? Does that the capacity of that line justify electrification? Or do I want to have battery powered trains? Yeah. And so on. The the question of technology is open. Financing alternatives are a big question because public budgets are under pressure. Probably if we look at the current situation, interest rate developments and slowing down of economies, it's probably not going to get better fast. At the same time, governments have signed up with their commitments for CO2 reduction. And um, the mobility and transport side, because of the number of decision makings, decision makers has its own challenges to move faster even though as we said in the beginning the potential of that industry is very big so for the governments what is the advantage for them how can they reduce their risk and and make this more viable i mean it is driven due to the government's commitment to reduce co2 also in mobility on the transport sure. side 
they ultimately have to be the driver of the change. Now, if they are dealing with private or public operators, which are also the owners of the assets, and if these operating companies, uh, the railway companies or PTOs, have to make their own decisions for the investment of low emission or zero emission technology, it will inevitably take longer because government is talking to the board of the PTO or railway company. By separating operation and ownership, the government can decide in this asset-owning company, like in the case you mentioned in the Hydrocrowd case, where we have a special purpose company which owns the asset, the government can decide we want um, battery-run trains, we want, or in this case, hydrogen-run trains, uh, or uh, we want to electrify the line and therefore invest in, in, in electrified trains. So they are they are much more directly able to make the decision. Once they have made the decision, they tender for the operations, or they tell their public railway company or the private ones if they wish. Now, if you want to want to continue to provide provide the service, this is the asset which you will have to run in the future. So, therefore, the separation of ownership and operations gives the government um, a much stronger position to enforce technological change to reduce emissions. I think that is one of the biggest benefits of this model. There are, of course, others which I have heard. In the field, in many countries, I have more cost transparency. Yeah, because if the operator also owns, then they say, "Well, we are loss making because of operations." And no, no, but then the interest rates for the for the financing, or it was the maintenance of the trains, also is less transparent. I've heard from many public officials: if I have two separate entities, I can more closely pin down. What are your financing needs? Why is it that you are loss-making? Why, why do I need to subsidize you? Either the one who's just owning the rolling stock or the one who's operating the trains. So for us as a financier, and that's maybe the third benefit, financing costs is much cheaper if we are only dealing with an asset-owning company which is free of operational risk. Why is that? The asset-owning company has to be has to receive a cash flow from government, which is sufficient to repay the loan. So in that cash flow from the municipality or from the government should be without subject. If the train isn't operated well, government still pays its cash flow to the asset-owning company, which is our borrower, to whom we lend for buying the trains. And Penalties go to the operators. Incentives go to the operators. So the operators, they are facing higher or lower payments from government according to their concession. That's standard business. But the actual investment of the trains receives a secure cash flow. Therefore, we can assume kind of government risk, municipal risk, government risk, and provide lowest cost of finance. And this is exactly what we have in the case of India where India already in 1986 separated ownership of the trains as a financing vehicle from operations, the big operator being Indian Railways Financial Corporation. 
And we can rely on a secure cash flow with respect to our borrower from the Indian government and provide finance at best terms. So these are kind of the three benefits for a, for a local or a central government of that model. This isn't you know, the first time that you know, private entities have been active in, in the you know, rail business, the rail industry. How does this model compare to, say, you know, the traditional PPP that we might have seen in, in previous years? And what were the limitations of that model and how, how might this you know, be more beneficial for, you know, for, for really extracting the benefits of the private sector within the rail market? Yeah, good question, Kevin. I mean, obviously, decades ago, one realised that uh, railway services are very complex and it seems that you know public entities, they were a little bit overburdened with the complexity to provide modern, efficient and growing rail services and therefore they thought it is best to spin it off and give it to a private entity so but what was done is that the three functions uh, at least operations and rolling stock ownership was given into the hands of one private entity in other cases even the infrastructure the railway network so all three functions operations rolling stock owning financing and maintenance and even infrastructure was given into the hands of one private entity now to the best of my knowledge we have many examples where we have learned meanwhile that that didn't work well why is that i think there's a relatively easy explanation operations is a very short-term risk perspective daily you have to see that the trains are clean on time safe etc rolling stock you may have a time horizon investment horizon of up to 30 years right and with infrastructure you're talking about a generational investment so the horizon is extremely different these are very different three functions and i think you are overburdening a private entity to put to 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 put this responsibility into one private entity therefore i think it's smarter from the cases we have learned from our customers in the field again to separate the functions the railway network is a natural monopoly my opinion that should stay a public good with the local or central government and then you separate again rolling stock from operations and then second level decision making you can decide what do you want to keep under public control and what do you want to privatize and we don't have the time in this podcast but i could give you the examples where we have the asset owning company which we call the mobility owner uh, and the entire concept the mobility owner concept but we have examples where the asset owning company is private or public even within germany but also globally and also we have, of course, examples where the operator is either public or private. Based on history, current conditions, political preference, the political decision makers can then decide, do I want to privatize the, the rolling stock ownership? Do I want to keep it? And I do the same with the operators. Do I want only one operator? It's a public or private one. Do I want several operators to have competition and tendering? All these decisions are second-level decisions after you have separated the rolling stock ownership from operations. 
absolutely take the complication out of it and then you can work out the details you know once the it's all established it's all in place uh, you, you mentioned time there so I, I will wrap things up now but you know, what what's the outlook here you know we've we've come so far you know there's there are some solid examples but now how do you see this evolving in the future you know where might we be within the next few years here i think probably the outlook based on a couple of points i mentioned already uh, let me put it bluntly, you know, the, the pressure is on to decarbonize mobility. And um, we have to make rail and also urban transport more attractive. Investing into assets only or finding new sources of financing isn't doing it alone. You know, we have discussed new organizational models uh, to make it faster, to make it more attractive and also provide quite indirectly, but effectively, a better services to customers. At the same time, there is a great learning curve. There is a lot of experimentation globally going on. We have addressed the various cases we have seen in the last years and decades. I think there's a great interest to learn from each other. I think we need more standardization. Uh, we need less variation. We need more central entities, either public or private, who provide these services, who are offering, like on the freight side, also on the passenger side, who are offering train assets, standardized contracts, standardized relationships between the parties mentioned. That is what I think is necessary. And since the pressure is on to reduce emissions, I think it will happen. And, and therefore, I'm quite positive that, we've, that we will see this innovation organizationally and in terms of technology such that mobility continues to reduce its emissions globally well it's always it's always nice to end on a positive note and yeah i mean that's obviously the objective for the rail industry and, and transport in general so no yeah it's uh yeah, thanks very much for your time today and it's, it was great to hear about the fantastic work that you're doing and yeah th thank you very much yeah kevin thank you very much for this opportunity great to talk to you thank you yeah, you, you too carson take care bye-bye Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. As always, for the latest railway industry news, analysis and opinion, subscribe today at railjournal.com. I am Kevin Smith and this has been Rail Group On Air. <laughs>